Hi friends, thank you for joining us again for the ASP Stories weekend bonus episode. Join us on Mondays and Thursdays where we interview amazing guests where they share with us about their adventure sports and the amazing feats that they have done. But ASP Stories is where we get to listen in as authors read their adventure stories to us. So sit back with your hot cup of tea or coffee and kick off your adventure-filled weekend by listening in while we hear more from ASP Stories. Hi, this is Ollie France, British adventurer and mountain leader. Excited to be back here today with the Adventure Sports Podcast, where I'll be reading another extract from my recently released book, The Trail of the Mountain Folk. In this book, I describe my solo journey in 2016 along the mountainous spine of Asia, where I travelled from Hong Kong to Istanbul. And today I'm going to read an extract from chapters 9 and 10, starting in the remote and ruggedly beautiful mountains of Kazakhstan. I hope you enjoy. There lies in mountaineering an eternal paradox between danger and fear, whereby a climber on a vertical cliff may be afraid, yet in little actual danger given the strength of his ropes and carabiners. Conversely, an alpinist on a snow-covered mountainside in pristine conditions will have no fear whatsoever, but may well be exposing themselves to lethal danger in the form of an unseen avalanche. Like so, through the sun, the wondrous landscape and the shooting stars, I had fallen into a mistaken sense of security, yet I was wandering alone into danger. Overnight I had filled my water bottles with snow and kept them by my feet in my sleeping bag. Such were the temperatures, though, that I had little water come morning, and I was without a stove. Becoming dehydrated, I stopped among the patch of brush, built a small fire and melted snow in an old sweet corn tin. It tasted awful. The mountains remained silent today. Clouds still lingered in the valleys, and the hot sun shone from above. I reached the snow slope at late morning, later than was ideal. By now the slope had been basking in the sun for several hours. Yet this slope, rising for three hundred metres, provided the only route towards Titova, my destined mountain. It glistened over me, a hulking, untouched tower of snow, the top of which could not be seen as it bent away in the distance. It appeared like a giant airship that had landed on the mountain and been covered by the blizzard. I began to climb, and felt that the snow was deep and loose. I wanted to tread quickly and lightly, but the terrain was taxing. Aiming directly uphill, I began to near the top of this mound. Then, in immediate succession, two paralysing things occurred. First, a colossal bang resounded across the peaks. I watched as a huge, corniced edge tumbled down a cliff beside the snow slope. It rumbled out of sight for what felt an eternity. Then I looked down to find with great alarm that a giant crack had broken in the snow beneath me, stretching for several metres on either side. Paralysed I remained, unwilling to go on, yet uncertain to go back. Whichever way I turned, forwards or backwards, I knew that an eight-hour trek loomed. I had climbed into a remote corner of Kazakhstan's mountains, and there was not another soul in sight. I had not moved a millimetre since my eyes fell on the expanding crack beside my feet. The slope was prone, 
Urgency was required, but decision was faltering. Commit to the slope and ascend, or retreat with haste. The sun sizzled on my neck. I tasted my parched lips and took a chancing breath. Then, on the promise of a familiar slope, I rotated and charged down the hill. What the hell was I doing? Mountains and old playground. I should have woken in the early hours of morning and climbed while the snow was hard. But my logic was faltered as my mind was mesmerized by the nightscape. What a fool I had been. Decision made, though. It was time to get out of here. I escaped the slope and ran clear of any avalanche path. Yet my troubles were not over. I was already out of water again, and my dehydration left me feeling dizzied. I trekked back along the ridgeline, counting Cumble as my Kazakh peak, before reaching the ice sheet above the main descent. After ten paces downhill, my crampon twisted on a hidden rock. I was caught in a lapse of concentration. My body twisted. I fell and began to slide down the ice sheet. My ice axe flew out of my hand and slid downhill ahead of me. Without my axe, I had no way of stopping. I couldn't dig my fingers into the solid ice. In a moment of sheer serendipity, though, my ice axe clinked against the protruding rock. I grabbed it as I slipped past and managed to perform an ice axe arrest to save me from sliding off the mountain. Perhaps, after all, Jakob was right. Maybe there is a god. I cursed myself once again and followed my footprints down a 900-meter snow slope to a stream where I hacked through ice and devoured crystalline water. Having walked for 12 hours, I finally reached the roadside after nightfall. Within seconds, I managed to flag down a passing car and hitch a ride back to the city. Half an hour later, I was gobbling a burger in Almaty, filthy and wild-haired among the watching diners. Today had provided a warning shot. High mountains could be known, in a euphemistic way, as mortality consultants. For there comes a time when one realises how imperious and everlasting the mountains are, the wise watchman of the world, and how fragile and temporary one's own existence is in comparison. A rockfall could so easily bludgeon my brittle skull and splatter my brains across the ground. An avalanche could sweep my flimsy body down the mountainside and crush me beneath tons of concrete ice. The freezing cold could bite into my extremities and gradually envelop my body in a comatose state from which I would never wake. Here in the highlands, the grim reaper prowls. No years of experience or planning or training can allow a man to fully defy the whim of the mountain. Who was I to face these monsters? I do not proclaim to be an expert mountaineer, and my years are still young. Each time I present myself alone to the mountains, I could also submit to them. I could splay my arms and declare, You are my master, have mercy on me. My respect for the mountains was growing with each climb of my expedition, as was my fear, as was my love. They may bring adrenaline or accident, ecstasy or death. One moment the mountains are paradise, but the next there could be hell. Among these thoughts was my wife Emma and my family, who at home shared none of my rapture, but all of my worry and more. With them in mind, perhaps the mountains today had cautioned me on purpose. Tread with care, young man, or you will tread no more. Fortunately, Jakob wasn't there when I got back to the guest house. I fell asleep when he returned, and I left the next morning before he rose. I was making the short journey into Kyrgyzstan, and the rugged heartland of Central Asia. 
This is one of the most mountainous countries on the planet, with an average elevation of almost 3,000 meters. It is a far poorer country than Kazakhstan, bearing no significant oil or gas reserves. Yet I understood that this jagged republic is home to some of the hardiest and most ancient mountain communities on the planet. The Kyrgyz national identity largely spawns from Manas, a legendary horse-bound hero. It is told that 1,000 years ago, a child was born with rare qualities of bravery, charisma and strength. A master of both horses and men, he gathered together and led Kyrgyzstan's 40 clans to fight off the attempted invasions of the Yugas and Afghans. The epic tale of Manas are recited today in traditional gatherings by expert storytellers who use music and singing to portray Manas's intrepid battles. In my mind, as I crossed the Kyrgyz border, the country which lay ahead promised everything I sought to find on this expedition. When I arrived in the capital, though, my first conversation enlightened me on the dark modern-day menace which is sweeping the country. Bishkek is an unglamorous city compared to Almaty. There is a general greyness to the square and simple streets, but the city is not unwelcoming. Here and there, busy green spaces can be found, along with the kind of austere statues and squares that one might expect to see in an ex-Soviet capital. Families enjoyed a ramshackle amusement park, and there was an obvious sense of community spirit as groups of youths swept leaves outside their concrete apartment blocks. Bishkek was a curious and unpretentious place, which I somehow liked at once. It was in my hostel by the city where I met a man named Meda. He was lazing on his bed with a can of lager. He had a pot belly, gold teeth, like many Kyrgyz, and scars on his face. He was evidently a tough man who offered the firmest handshake. With a swig of beer, he opened his conversation with a question one could never preempt. What are the prisons like in your country? I'm not sure, I frowned. They're okay, I think. They are easy. I think so. Meda scowled before breaking into a drunken laugh. The prisons in Kyrgyzstan are hard. Here in Central Asia, we have the worst prisons in the world. Knowing that this gentleman would soon be sleeping just several feet away from me, I hope that his enthusiasm for the subject of incarceration was either derived from watching documentaries or from serving as an honourable prison guard. They're disgusting, he returned. There are dozens of men in every cell and you sleep on the floor. Every cell, it, it has a boss. And if you do something wrong and make the boss angry, him and his gang will stab you or kill you. But if you have money, his teeth gleamed, you can live like a king. The prisons are the same in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. People are like rats in there. Have you ever been to prison? Um, no. Don't go to prison in Kyrgyzstan. What would happen if I did? Meadow looked up at me with a smirk, which became a full-bone belly laugh which sent tears to his eyes. <laughs> they will kill you. I found myself laughing too, for I expected to hear nothing less. Meda eventually mellowed and spoke with a deeper voice. I'm here on Bishkek on business. He had a small briefcase, some more cans of beer, and nothing else. I see. What do you do? Selling. Meda leant closer. Selling drugs. 
Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, when Central Asia became five separate nations, poverty, corruption and unguarded border zones have provided a hotbed for heroin trafficking. From the opium-growing heartlands of Afghanistan, the drug travels northwards through the region and towards the strangled veins of Russian and European addicts. It's estimated that 25% of all the world's heroin passes through Kyrgyzstan, the vast majority of which slips past bribed or unsuspecting officers. In turn, illicit wealth finds crime kingpins or high-level officials, and tantalising bounties await for small-time salesmen like Meda. I believe. I believe that adventure sports will improve your health. I believe that adventure sports will improve your outlook on life. I believe that adventure sports will build community, heal families, and inspire children. I believe that adventure sports will improve this planet. And I believe that adventure is fun. Travis and I created the Adventure Sports Podcast because we believe that adventure sports can make a real difference in this world. The Adventure Sports Podcast creates joy, health, purpose, relationships, memories, and second chances. Do you believe? It is our goal in the new year to double the number of listeners to ASP. Why? To double the good the show is doing. We started this show on the last day of February nearly three years ago. So by the last day of February this year, we will be celebrating double the joy, double the health, double the memories, and double the second chances. This is our challenge to you. Do you believe? Join with us. Tell others about the show. Tell them about the 340-plus episodes of stories, examples, and inspiration. Tell them about this resource that is there for them to explore and encounter. Kickstart their adventure. Kickstart a life. It's official. Winter has arrived, and Bentgate Mountaineering is prepared to help you get ready for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear, so you can get your skis and your boots there, as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts, so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. You know, we might be smack dab in the middle of winter these days, but spring is really just right around the corner. Make sure you've got one of our lightweight camp stoves ready to go in your pack for when the weather starts turning warmer. Both the 180 stove and the 180 flame are designed to burn the abundant wood fuels you find on the ground instead of requiring you to haul in heavy, messy camp fuels. Take a minute to head on over to our site at www.180tack.com to check out these American-made stoves that are built to last. You'll be helping us and you'll be helping the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks, guys. next morning, 
I thanked Meda for the pleasure of his acquaintance and hoped that I might never see him again. Still intoxicated by Kazakhstan's highland utopia, and with heavy snow forecast in a couple of days' time, I aimed for the mountains once more. One hour south of Bishkek lies the Alatu Mountains, a jagged array of accessible peaks, which were presently deserted for the winter months. A taxi was my only means of accessing the lonesome trailhead, Alpleja, which sits at 2,100 metres. From here, paths wind across valleys and glaciers towards dozens of summits, many of which represent technical climbs. My target was Komsomolets Peak at 4,150 metres, a mountain which I knew almost nothing about, but which, according to the contours of my GPS, seemed doable alone, depending on conditions. On the morning of my arrival there, the skies were melancholy. They turned the landscape a brooding shade, and from my first steps forward, I felt the distinct sense of isolation. After walking in along the valley, my climb began with a 1500 metre ascent up a scree and snow slope to a high ridge. From there, the ridge extended for several kilometres towards Komsomolets. The snow was often sparse on this south-facing ridge, but it accumulated more as I ascended. Overhead for 20 minutes, I was pursued by a magnificent eagle, circling above and perhaps wondering whether I was an edible morsel. As the night drew close, I set my bivouac on the ridgeline at 4,000 metres, and it was then that my true challenge began. Twilight arrived quickly among oncoming clouds, they mustered overhead, and the temperature began to plummet. I lay in my sleeping bag, having snacked on bread and cheese, ready to wait out the night. The temperature gauge on my watch told me it was minus 10 degrees Celsius, then minus 15. Snow began to fall at midnight, and a wicked wind swirled from the south. I wore everything I owned, and was huddled inside my sleeping bag and bivouac. The weather front had arrived a day early, and there was nothing I could do. Wind chill made the temperature around minus 30, and an intense stinging pain was spreading through my feet. I was truly on the edge of warmth. My kit was good, but it was not built to withstand such temperatures. Shards of snow skipped across my uncovered face and the minutes dragged by. I managed only an hour or two of sleep. Beside me, my camera, food and walking boots had all frozen solid. I used my bag as an improvised windbreak, but it didn't reduce the cold. As dawn approached and the faintest glimmer of daylight woke the darkened sky, I could see that the weather was set to worsen still. This was one of those distinct moments where I had to ask myself, how much do I want it? Do I get out of my sleeping bag and step into the blizzard? Do I lace my frozen boots onto my freezing feet? Do I pack my things and throw my heavy rucksack onto my shoulders? Do I journey on step after step despite the altitude and the cold and the hunger, cross a perilous ridge just to satisfy my inconsequential aim of summiting a still distant mountain? It was an aim which mattered to no other person in the world but me. It was then, as I lay among the snowstorm at six in the morning, that a powerful thought struck my mind, a thought which has stayed with me ever since that day. I realised that everything I thought was stopping me from reaching the summit, the cold, the blizzard, the altitude and the hunger, didn't really matter.
the only real barrier between myself and the summit was me. I knew I had the skills to go on, but did I have the guts, the drive, the resilience? With a surge of inspiration, I climbed out of my sleeping bag, laced up my frozen boots, running on the spot for ten minutes to ease the pain in my feet, shouldered my expedition pack and advanced into the blizzard. It was a lonesome slog to the craggy summit, but upon my arrival there I was overwhelmed by a delirious euphoria, and I yelled into the blizzard. Freedom, solitude, adrenaline and fear circled in my mind. This is why I quit my day job, and this is why, despite the danger, the mountains always lure me back. Life on the edge, I thought, or life over. Abreast a wave of surging energy, I raced downhill, skidding through snow and scree, to arrive in the marginally warmer climbs of Alpladger, just four hours later. With no reason to linger as the snow persisted, and my food dwindled, I filled my lungs and set towards Bishkek. Unfortunately, it was forty kilometres away. There were a few cars around, but no people. After half an hour of walking, though, I managed to hitch a ride with a kind local family. They fed me chocolates and drove me directly to my hostel without accepting a penny. When I told them about camping on the mountain ridge, the mother gasped, Weren't you worried about eagles pecking your face? No, I replied, and I guess I should have been. Foreign tourists are very sparse in Central Asia, especially during the winter. Indeed, I had not encountered a western traveller since meeting Emma in Chengdu. It was refreshing the next evening to find a small bar in the centre of the city, frequented by a cluster of fascinating people. I fell in with two Kyrgyz ladies, two US Marines, an American traveller and an Afghan charity worker. Our conversation was immediately deep, topical and interesting, stimulating my mind and my long-rested vocal cords. We won a pub quiz in the bar before a local brew plied its heady course into my bloodstream. As we traipsed the taverns of Bishkek into the early hours, my inebriation mingled with my mountain-born adrenaline. I found an intense hedonistic state. Music, dancing and booze edged me deeper into my sense of freedom. That night, my place on earth felt divine. I was unemployed, untethered, unconcerned, liberated to the nth degree until the haze smeared my euphoria and put an end to all recollection. That was an extract read from my recently released book, The Trail of the Mountain Folk. If you're interested to learn more about me or read more of my book, you can purchase your own copy. And the best way to do that is to head to my website. That's www.oliverfrance.com. There I've also got a few travel videos and some more travel writing. And it's a great place if you'd like to connect with me or come and say hi on social media. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Ollie France. Hopefully see you on the road sometime. All right. Thanks for tuning in to Ollie France's second excerpt from his book. You can find Ollie's interview on episode 330. If you want to hear more from him or get his book, you can go to oliverfrance.com and get more information there. Next week, we're going to move on to Brian Snyder. He's been on the show a couple times on episode 135 and 302. He'll be reading a few excerpts from his books over the next couple of weeks about hiking in the American West. Until then, get out and have some fun.